Spencer, thought leader in crypto, and now at Blockchain Capital. Their first fund was in 2014, about three to five million. To uh, second fund, uh, about in 2015, about 15 million. Then their third fund, uh, they sold down in 30 minutes. It was an ICO or token issuance back in April 2017 of 10 million bucks. Now doing the fourth fund at four, uh, 250 million bucks, investing in companies like Argo, like Civic, uh, like Coinbase. Uh, most he's uh, most bullish on Coinbase in terms of value, but again, also super helpful in understanding how they got involved in Civic, both from a traditional kind of note perspective, but also in their token issuance. This is The Top, where I interview entrepreneurs who are number one or number two in their industry in terms of revenue or customer base. You'll learn how much revenue they're making, what their marketing funnel looks like, and how many customers they have. I'm now at $20,000 per talk. Five and six million. He is hell-bent on global domination. We just broke our 100,000 units sold mark. And I'm your host, Nathan Latka. Many of you listening right now don't have time to listen to every B2B SaaS CEO that I've interviewed. If you want to get access to the database I've created with year-over-year growth rates, customer accounts, margins, and many, many other data uh, metrics and data points, you can go to getlatka.com. Here's the thing, though. This that database, I keep it to myself. It's so freaking valuable. And to preserve the quality of the data and make sure that the people that have access to it have a true advantage, I'm only letting 10 companies on each month. So we're full this month, but you can go to getlatka.com to get on the waiting list for next month. And look, there's big people on the waiting list. I mean, the biggest VCs you've ever heard of. You've probably heard of them. They're big, private equity, billions and billions under management. So it's an impressive waiting list. Go get on now at getlatka.com. Hello, everybody. My guest today is Spencer Bogart. It's going to be everything crypto. He's a managing director and the head of research for Blockchain Capital, the premier venture firm investing directly into blockchain companies. Prior to joining Blockchain Capital, Spencer was a VP of equity research where he covered traditional software and internet stocks. He wrote Wall Street's first industry report on blockchain technology and was the most active analyst covering Bitcoin. Spencer, are you ready to take us to the top? Yeah, absolutely. Good. Well, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. So listen, I'm just going to dive right in here. I first want your opinion on uh, on Grayscale. So one of the things, and, and their, 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 you know, Bitcoin, you know, what they're building, right? So a lot of people that I've had on, whether it's Anthony Delorio from Ethereum or, or, or Christoph, who had the, the DAO issue and all this stuff, they, they all say that the big value of crypto is the decentralization. And so one of the things we've heard about and my listeners have heard about a lot is, you know, Target hacked for, you know, you know, 10 million credit card accounts hacked, etc. Because hackers know all that credit card data is in one spot, it creates a target. Well, Grayscale, I imagine by setting up this kind of Bitcoin investment vehicle, they've created essentially a target, I believe. Uh, is that a real threat? And what are your thoughts generally on whether it's an ETF model or, or what Grayscale is doing? What is your thought on kind of this kind of crypto hedge fund? Yeah, so you're right. It, it has created a, a honeypot, right? And so, it, you know, in, important in this context is actually that the honeypot is actually bigger on the exchanges. So, you know, Coinbase, Kraken, uh, Poloniex, Poloniex probably being one, one of the bigger risks out there. Um, you know, these are giant honeypots of Bitcoins. And the problem is once they're gone, they're gone. There's no getting them back, right? Um, but overall, if, we, if I circle back to, you know, GBTC, the Bitcoin Investment Trust, I mean, the reality is that this that's is the best scales, way. Right? Yeah, that's Grayscale's yeah. product. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the reality is that this is the best product um, that exists today. Um, it's not a perfect product, but it's the best that exists today. And the only way to get exposure to an exotic asset that is Bitcoin in a traditional security wrapper, mm -hmm. right? 
So for one of my listener, I mean, obviously this, I, I don't know that this is necessarily open, but currently I'm, I'm just reading the data off the site. They've got about 437 million bucks in assets under management, about 1.8 million shares outstanding and Bitcoin per shares about go close to 0.1. If someone listening right now, I mean, can any of them get exposure to Bitcoin going through this if they're, if they're illiterate and not on the technical ways that Bitcoin actually works or crypto works? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of the companies make it pretty easy to, to be able to acquire Bitcoin. So, you know, Coinbase being one of my favorite, Kraken being another, um, you know, the user interface is pretty simple. It just looks like a regular standard kind of email address and password. Um, and then just with a little bit more kind of two-factor authentication and stuff to keep your Bitcoin secure. Um, but but you don't have to be really technically savvy to be able to, to go ahead and acquire those. You know, as you try and, as you extract your Bitcoin, so when you buy it on Coinbase, you can move it to your personal wallet so that it's outside of kind of that honeypot and only you control it um, you know a, as you go down that road it, it requires a little bit more technical expertise but honestly there are a lot of products out there that make it pretty simple today you famously predicted uh, many many months ago I think late last year or early this year uh, that there was a sub 25% chance of the US Securities and Exchange Commission approving a Bitcoin ETF uh, first off do you still believe it's sub 25% and if so why that prediction very good question. Um, so, you know, it's really around the nature of the underlying markets of Bitcoin, right? So it's very difficult for regulators to get comfortable with it. Not that they shouldn't be able to get comfortable with it, but that it's difficult. And I acknowledge that. Um, and overall, from a decision maker standpoint, if you're at the SEC, you know, this is one of those things where if you approve this this particular ETF and it goes really well, you know, nobody comes back and kind of, you know, gives you a big promotion, right? But if you do approve it and something goes wrong, you know, maybe a billion dollars worth of assets flows into this type of a fund, um, and some some sort of a hack or something like that happens, you know, you might lose your career. Um, so so it's just kind of this asymmetric downside risk from a regulator's standpoint of approving such an ETF. Um, you know, that said, that's kind of been my historical perspective. I still largely think that's the case. There has been a change in administration at the SEC that, that could be a little bit more favorable um, to kind of working with, with, with cryptocurrencies in general. Okay, so do you still believe it's sub 25% that actually happens because of the downside or the asymmetrical downside risk? I think it's still quite low. I mean, the SEC has made you know a pretty definitive decision about this, that the underlying markets for Bitcoin are too unregulated, mm -hmm. and therefore they're not going to allow a regulated product. So it's kind of a circular argument in that it's too unregulated, so we won't regulate it. But you know, it is as it is. But the interesting thing here is also that the Winklevoss brothers, kind of a Facebook fame, you know, are the the entity kind of uh, that were pushing that big ETF that, that was disapproved in March. Um, after it was disapproved, they submitted a, an appeal to the SEC um, to reconsider the decision. Surprisingly, I don't know what was in that appeal. It's not a public record. Um, I didn't expect the SEC to grant that appeal, but they have. And so they are reviewing the decision it's possible that we get a reversal and the ETF is approved. Um, again, I'd pin those odds pretty low for the same reasons as before. How much and does this change in the underlying markets? How much is that the mere news that they're reconsidering that drive up the value of crypto? Um, you know, it didn't seem to have much of an effect. It felt like we had a huge buildup as the kind of the original kind of approval decision came came to a head. And it literally, the SEC waited until the last day to make a decision after, you know, about three years of reviewing this particular filing. Um, it felt like, you know, the price was kind of ramping up in anticipation of a potential approval, in which case, you know, if it were approved, you would have had kind of a flood of assets coming in um, and potentially pushing up the price. And so you had speculators kind of moving in beforehand. Um, still, that said, when it was disapproved, we 
saw this quick spike down in price. I mean, literally a spike down for maybe 30 seconds or so. And then price was just right back to where it was before. So, so far it seemed pretty resilient and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of speculative activity kind of just around this decision. Okay, uh, I would just want to fire, obviously those are very random questions, but I was very curious your thoughts on them. Let's focus to blockchain capital now. What's it do? Uh, and and sure. I mean, should we think about it like a VC firm focused on blockchain? That's exactly it. Yeah. So, I mean, we're the premier venture firm. We've been investing in the space since, uh, you know, four or five years now. Um, and so, you know, it's been great. We're now raising our fourth fund. Um, what was the last one? The last fund we did as our own ICO. So I don't know if you've been following this ICO phenomenon, but we raised the world's very first venture fund via an ICO. So we limited the size. We capped it at just a small $10 million offering to make sure that you know we, we can mitigate, mitigate risk there and make sure that it's successful. That offering, that $10 million sold out in 30 minutes when, when we went live with the sale. What day was that or, or what month? That was on, I believe it was April 10th. Last year? I believe, of uh, this year. Oh, this year, April 2017. Mm -hmm. And had you raised traditional capital from LPs before that ICO? Yeah. So yeah. So that was our third fund. So you know we've we've we did two traditional funds before that, and now we're raising our our fourth fund, which will be um, you know at least an order of magnitude larger than than you know fund three. From LPs, you're going to ICO or do a token issuance? Oh no, this one's uh, from traditional LPs. Um, you know. We'll, there's a lot of institutional appetite to move into the space now. Yep. So, you know, this industry has changed substantially. A few years ago, um, you know, we had the first major boom. There was a lot of investment activity. Most of those bets didn't seem to be paying off for a long time. And only in the past kind of eight months have a lot of them started to bear, you know, really big juicy fruit um, in the, it, you know, we have a couple of unicorns kind of lurking in the background that haven't officially done a raise yet, but I think we're going to start to see this moving forward. And the institutional investors that are out there are aware of this, and they are saying that now is the time to deploy capital. And so, you know, I mean, we're just all hands on deck, and, you know, people are beating down our door to to come and get some exposure to, to the industry. So guys, coming up, I'm going to ask uh, more questions for Spencer around, uh, obviously, the crypto space, specifically some of the investments he's made uh, or they've made, like uh, in Coinbase. Uh, and then additionally, uh, more of his thoughts on kind of the ICO network in general, or, or sorry, the ICO concept in general and where they headed specific with an example that recently they got behind, which was uh, Civic, uh, which is an interesting story. Uh, Spencer, first, though, give me the fund size real quick. So fund, fund one was what size and fund two was what size? Oh, geez, I'd have to go back. Fund one was like around a three or five million dollar fund. That okay. was in the very early days when there was no investment activity in the space. What fund year? two was fifteen million dollars. Uh, that would have been, I think it didn't. I think it closed in like around mid twenty fourteen. Okay, the one and two was twenty fifteen. Two was twenty fifteen, and then yeah, exactly. And so we've been deploying the funds from both of those, and then we did fund three earlier this year, which is just a really small one. And I mean, we're moving the capital pretty quickly there. Um, our deal pipeline is just fund, it's fund four. Bursting. What's your target? Uh, it's almost certainly going to be an oversubscribed $250 million fund. Yeah, that's where you say the, 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 you undersell. And, and so the big press article comes out that you beat your 250 by 50 million raise 300 million, right? But we're no, we're not going to do that. We're hard capping it. <laughs> that's, that's the amount that we, um, you know, we think the space can really handle right now. And we just don't want to go above that. We think we'd start to dilute our returns if we did that. Okay. Let's talk civic, right? I want to actually understand how you're taking kind of LP dollars and funneling them into yeah. kind of crypto assets. So, so how did the civic deal work? Yeah, so the Civic deal was really well organized. So actually, in this particular case, we're actually equity holders, um, or we, we held a convertible note previously with the company, um, and then also have now invested into their token sale. So, you know, in this particular case, um, you know, Vinny Lingham is a, a noted entrepreneur in the space, and he, you know, 
he raised, I think it was $33 million in total um, and did it through a process that was one of the most well-organized that, that we've seen. It was very much like standing in line for like a Burning Man ticket or for an oversold concert or something in that in that respect. Um, and that not everybody could get a piece, but it made the best effort to add a broad distribution. Describe Just so people have context, describe what Civic is, like what, what the business is. Yeah. Yeah, so Civic is a, a an identity on the blockchain type application. So it's uh, the idea is that you know this company does not take any of your identity information, but it allows you to provide it to others. So it's only stored kind of locally on your device on the edge. It uses authentication on the blockchain so that people can verify that you are who you say you are, um, and that that matches your fingerprint without turning over that identity information to you know a third party provider like a Facebook or somebody. You mentioned you had uh, a note early on in Civic. Uh, how much capital do they raise? A traditional capital or did they raise before they decided to do the token issuance? Oh, I'd have to go back and check to see exactly what that note was. And I, and I can't remember if it's a public record, but um, you know, the token offering was significantly larger. Okay, the reason I wonder that amount is I want to understand the relationship between traditionally raised capital and what happens when you then do a token issuance after the fact. It seems like that adds complexity. How, how, how does that, how do you guys look at that capital? The early capital. That's exactly right. So, you know, this is one of the most interesting ongoing discussions that we have kind of internally um, is how do we handle this situation where we've already invested in the equity of companies now as a token sale, right? So um, that's an evolving science and we're trying to figure out exactly how to handle those situations. Um, I wish I had a perfect answer for you right now, but it is an evolving science. Well, I mean, what? so I'm going to make the hypothetical to just try and drive this down more. Let's say the company sells today. Let, I'm, I'm making this up. Let's say uh, uh, BB&T buys them for, for $200 million, right? I mean, the people that bought tokens and they, they, they issued basically a billion tokens and only sold 33% of them, is that dilutive to your capital you've already put in or no? The tokens are not, no. Okay, so so so... The only people actually on the cap table is, is traditional capital already in and then whatever they kept for founders and whatever the equity pool is for employees, just like a typical startup, right? That's exactly it, yeah. Okay. What, okay, so I understand that completely. This distribution would just happen, you know, uh, whatever the waterfall is. How would people that bought in on the token issuance uh, 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 analyze that if they sold to BB&T? What would happen? Yeah. Well, in that particular case, so they might not benefit directly from that particular transaction, so from the acquisition of the company, but what they are going to be benefiting for is that ideally in that kind of a favorable acquisition scenario is that it's an indication that there's a lot of demand for the underlying technology, um, in which case, you know, the tokens of Civic are fundamentally tied to demand to use their service, right? So. You know, in that particular situation of a favorable acquisition, presumably demand is surging, in which case, you know, the tokens should be reacting favorably as well, even if they don't aren't getting literally paid out or anything by an acquisition. So uh, I want to read this from uh, it was it was well, not the whole thing, but it was uh, the router's report when uh, when Vinny went on and kind of released the crowdfunding. So one billion tokens were created by Civic. Thirty three percent were offered in the public sale uh, and then thirty three percent were given away to companies and users to accelerate growth or it will be given away to do that. And then another thirty three percent will remain in the company's inventory and be available for sale only after three years. I understand the first part, which is they sold 33% in the token sale. Yep. So let's skip to the second. 33% will be given away to companies and users to accelerate network growth. Can we look at this and basically say that's the equivalent of the $10 million Stripe fund or the Slack investment fund to fuel their ecosystems? I would say that's it's very, very similar. Yes, absolutely. It, it helps you solve kind of a, a chicken and egg problem, right, of... You know, if I'm Civic and, you know, one of their, the main things they would like to have is, you know, a login with Civic button everywhere that, you know, 
doesn't give away as much of your personal information as like a login with Facebook type button. Um, but how do you incentivize a bunch of people, a bunch of websites and login services to have that button um, before you have a huge user base? And how do you have a big user base until you can log into all these? So you have this chicken and egg problem. And tokens are one way to help solve that. I mean, I know in particular for, you know, a couple of websites that we run, you know, we'll definitely have a civic login. And that's because we want some of those civic tokens. And so civic will reward some of the people in the ecosystem that, you know, integrate their service with tokens directly. Okay. That's um, not so mining that though, right? Become, the concept of mining is no, not no, that. No, no, you know what? It's not, but in this context, I mean, you can think of it, it is a direct parallel. That's, okay. You know, I, you're thinking about it the right way. Okay, good. Uh, last part. And the remaining 33% will remain in the company's inventory and will be available for sale only after three years. Why do they do that? Well, because you have to think about it, just like, um, you know, if you're doing venture rounds, like you don't raise all of your money, you know, right away, you start with seed, you start with series A. I mean, the idea is that, you know, we want civic wanted to sell enough tokens and get that distribution very broad to create this initial user base to kind of, again, solve that chicken and egg problem and kind of grow their network effect. Um, but down the line, they think these tokens are going to be worth more than they are today, right? I mean, that's the reason why companies holding on the balance sheet and why they've reserved some for a future sale. So, you know, just like a company doesn't sell all of its equity up front in its first round, um, you know, in this case, this is certainly not equity in any regards. Um, but also, you know, if you think that it's going to be worth more in the future, then you'd prefer to wait and sell some of it at a future point in time. Interesting. So, can, can, I mean, Venny, you, other investors could be thinking about that in terms of, hey, if this does grow in value over time, we still have 33% left to raise additional capital from. But guess what? If we want to raise another 33 million, maybe we only have to sell like 3% of the company of the 33% that's left versus another 33% total. That's exactly it. Interesting. Interesting. Right. Okay. That's fascinating. So, um, how do you, you mentioned you, you were part of kind of the traditionally, the traditional capital they raised before the token issuance. You then said you participated right. in the token issuance. How did you use, I'm making this up. How did you use a million dollars of LP raised money from your, your fund? And how did you put that and translate that into amount of tokens in uh, civic or CBC, I think is what they're going to issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I, I would have to go back and see exactly what all of our investment amounts that I time up to and exactly how we handle that convertible note. Sorry, just so all these not the actual numbers, right but just the relationship. Like I'm trying to understand. That's a hypothetical. Yeah, 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 just yeah. The, how does it actually work? Um, I mean, they're just two completely different decisions. So, you know, we made the equity decision completely at one point in time and then the tokens at, a, at another point in time. Um, and how so, do you do you know, it though? What, what, I'm, are... what I'm trying to understand, Spencer, is how do you, when you decide you want to take part in a token issuance as an investor, like, like how, what, what mm -hmm. you mentioned, it's like a line for Burning Man, but how, but how does it actually work? Ah. So, I mean, each of these kind of token offerings is going with slightly different models. I think the Civic one has been the best run to date. Um, in particular, you had to use kind of their identity application in order to stand in line. You know, when that token sale opened, you said that I want to participate. Um, and, you know, you got some placeholder in line. You might have been towards the front. You might have been towards the back. And, you know, that offering to prevent kind of the FOMO that we've seen in some of these offerings um, just kind of went on a rolling basis. First person in line gets the option to purchase, you know, a package of up to a maximum size. And then, you know, once all the packages of a maximum size are sold out, you start to kind of scale people back so that, um, you know, if you're towards the back of the line, um, you either might not have gotten a chance to participate or if you did at a much lower amount than, you know, people at the front. But, um, you know, such is the nature of a, something that's in limited supply with, you know, outsized demand. Are you actually putting up like United States dollars to buy an equivalent amount of a, a, like Ether or CBC, whatever the ratio is they're using? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in this case, we, 
we actually contributed with Bitcoin, I believe, in this particular sale. Sometimes it's with cryptocurrency and sometimes it's with USD. But, you know, I mean, hey, uh, you know, crypto is as, uh, about as good as, as USD these days, considering how easy it is to kind of exchange back and forth between the two. So, OK, OK, let me ask you the next question. So we have many, many entrepreneurs that listen to the show, VCs, private equity people for a startup CEO looking to do this and wondering the question, well, how does Civic pay like early employees and how does Vinny pay himself a salary, et cetera, if this is all in crypto? Uh, I got the answer to right. that, I believe when I interviewed the the Joe, the founder of First Blood, that did a token issuance on, on, on the Ethereum uh-huh. blockchain back in September, uh, capped it at $5 mm-hmm. million. He then immediately liquidated 80% of it at an $11 kind of price point. That was what Ethereum was at the point. So they put basically $4 million bucks in their BB&T account. Um, I can't wrap my mind around how that just feels like a lottery ticket. Like, how do you manage to pull Like the equivalent I see is like when I raised venture capital in my last company it would basically be like, like me saying, I'm gonna raise 10 million bucks, but I'm actually selling a bunch of my equity and I'm gonna cash out 9 million of it, right? So like, that's not a good sign of confidence to the business. How do people manage what they pull out to actually run the business versus what they keep in? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, most of these, the, the, taking the funds that they raised and, you know, largely converting it into kind of a fiat currency, U.S. dollar, euros or something like that, because they have to pay their bills, right? Um, some of them are being a little bit more speculative of, okay, we're going to hold some of the, the funds that we raised and in, in keep it in cryptocurrency. Um, you know, that's that can play favorably, like in the first blood example, when they sold at $11. And I mean, today, you know, Ethereum trades at about $180. Yeah. Um, so, you know, left a lot of money in that table, but it could have gone the other way as well. It could have gone down to $1, right? So, you know, I think most of the more prudent teams are doing a, a pretty significant conversion up front. Um, and maybe leaving what are you a seeing on, on average? Well. You have a unique perspective. You have a very unique perspective. Are most people liquidating 50%, 80%, 10%? What are you seeing? I'd say most of them are liquidating upwards of 80%, but, um, you know, some of them like to roll the dice a little bit more. Um, you know, the teams that, that we're working with, it's, you know, that's not the reason why investors invested in your token sale was for you to speculate on the price of Bitcoin or Ether. Do yourself a favor, convert to a currency that you can actually pay your bills in and pay your developers in. Um, and yes, you might leave some upside on the table. Uh, and, you know, you might also avoid downside. So, you know, just mitigate the risk. That's not why people came in and participated in your token sale was for you to speculate on those cryptocurrencies. So, um, yep. you know. But that cash is what allows you to then go. That cash is then what allows you to actually go build the utility value of the identity network. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Last set of questions here, and it's around Coinbase particularly. So founded in 2012, I think they've raised what over 100 million dollars. Many would say. I mean, would you say the, the, the number one exchange? Yeah, I mean, they're certainly the, the biggest brand in the space, right? They're kind of like the blue chip company. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of the way that they're thought of within the space. Um, you know, certainly they're, they're thought leaders and definitely forerunners in the exchange. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to rank this. You know, by valuation basis, they're probably, um, you know, the most valuable or one of the most valuable. Mm-hmm. One of the questions listeners are always wondering when I have crypto guests on is they go, Nathan, if I like make money in crypto or I'm mining or something and then I need to pay for my restaurant bill tonight, and it's a hundred bucks. How do I actually like make that happen from my crypto assets? And the answer is something like Coinbase, right? Some exchange, which mm-hmm. they make money based off of, mm-hmm. of a fee. Now, if the U.S. government mm-hmm. and governments around the world start normalizing, right, the use of Bitcoin so, or crypto so that restaurants actually accept crypto, etc., the need to actually use an exchange decreases drastically, right, which potentially yes. negatively, actually really negatively impacts Coinbase's model. So, 
what's interesting here, and I want your perspective on, there is a perverse incentive structure where Coinbase is actually incentivized to not see widespread government adoption of crypto because they need people to be putting money through their system to, to, to exchange it to make money. Is that accurate? And if so, uh, if the government does approve this kind of thing, does Coinbase go out of business? You know, it's a reasonable question. I think that if Coinbase had that problem, this would be a very high class problem for them to have. Um, in reality, merchant processing is an insignificant portion of their business, right? So this ability to, I mean, like Coinbase a lot of times will do that directly for a merchant, right? So, you know, somebody's paying you in Bitcoin, I'm Expedia.com, somebody has tried to pay with Bitcoin. Most of the time what those services are doing, whether it's Dollar Expedia, Microsoft, or any of the other websites that, that either do or have historically accepted Bitcoin, they're converting it immediately. So they're using a service provider like Coinbase or BitPay to convert that to fiat currency immediately. Um, that is not as big of a, it's not as meaningful of a business as just the exchange business overall. And so in that situation that you described where you know this becomes very widespread adoption and people are just paying directly, what you described there, by the way, is a, a circular economy, right? So when I pay with Bitcoin, they, the company actually takes in Bitcoin and doesn't try to convert it. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that we get to a circular economy, there's a lot of capital that needs to flow through these on-ramps that are Coinbase and Kraken and these other major exchanges. And so, you know, again, I, I really don't think they'll be hurting. Well, it needs to. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, some people, you're right, they just mine cryptocurrency. and But that's, you know, that's a small portion of it overall, right? A lot of the capital comes in from converting U.S. dollars or, or euros. So... You know, I think that in, in that particular situation, Coinbase is going to be in a very, very good position. Okay, last question before we wrap up with the Famous Five. Pick a baby. What what investment are you most excited about? Oh, that's a very good question. I mean, it's hard to not have Coinbase as a favorite at the moment. I mean, they're just, they're leading the pack. Um, they're probably the most valuable company in our portfolio today. Um, that said, you know, I mean... We'll have to wait and see. You know, conservatively, we're estimating that there's probably four unicorns in our portfolio today. So um, they are, I guess I'd have to pick them. Guys, big news. Last month was a huge month for the company I recently acquired, which was www.thetopinbox.com. I liked the company so much when I met the person who created it. It lets you send emails later on Gmail set up reminders like snooze almost to keep your inbox clean do things like send auto follow-ups and do open tracking so you know when your emails get opened it's great if you're in sales or ceo or trying to be more productive so listen i bought the whole company on the spot and i want to tell you how i did it i've showed the deal by the way to big smart people private equity firms vcs and they're dumbfounded they go nathan how did you do this we've never seen a deal like this how did you do this so i did an unbelievable deal and I want to show you the income report. So for me to send you the income report, go to www.thetopinbox.com, click the red button that says install this on Gmail. And when you do that, my email will appear. It'll appear in a little uh, Gmail pop-up window. Send me an email and I'll reply immediately with the income report. And you can see how I'm buying and growing small B2B SaaS companies. That's www.thetopinbox.com. Totally free to try and use. www.thetopinbox.com. All right, let's wrap up here, Spencer, with the famous five. Number one, what's your favorite business book? My favorite business book? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, you know, Peter Thiel's is a good one. Zero to one? Yep. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying currently? Ooh, you know, historically, one of the ones who is not as active anymore, but, um, you know, one of the CEOs that I was a big fan of was actually CEO of 21 Inc., um, Balaji, sort of awesome. 
Um, Jason Horowitz. He, he's gone quiet because um, he was up for a, a major kind of government appointment. Um, I haven't heard a word on that, but it, you know, it's kind of made him a, a lot more quiet on social media, et cetera. Number three, what's your favorite online tool like HostGator? My favorite online tool, I guess right now in the crypto community, it's got to be Telegram. Um, that's where we're all kind of connecting. Got it. No, and that, that's like, uh, can we think about that, like a big forum? It's where all the, the crypto headies hang out. It's very much like a Slack. Okay, got it. All right, number four. How many hours of sleep do you get every night? <laughs> Lately, uh, probably only five to six, but um, typically more like six to seven. And what's your situation? Married, single, you have kids? Married. No, no kiddos? Kids. All right, and how old are you, Spencer? Nope. Uh, just under 30. All right. <laughs> I like how you say that. Last question. Take us back nine or 10 years. What do you wish your 20-year-old self knew? Oh, I just wish I was spending more time on Bitcoin. Um, you know, there was a lot of people that were very close proximity to me geographic wise that were doing really interesting work in the early days. And I just really, you know, I, I'm relatively early compared to most people, but there was, you know, a lot of people that were very, very early to the space. It was a fascinating, fascinating time to be part of it in these very early days. Um, and if I could go back, I just wish I would have been there. There you guys have it from Spencer, thought leader in crypto, and now at Blockchain Capital. Their first fund was in 2014, about three to five million. To uh, second fund, uh, about in 2015, about 15 million. Then their third fund, uh, they sold out in 30 minutes. It was an ICO or token issuance back in April 2017 of 10 million bucks. Now doing the fourth fund at four, uh, 250 million bucks, investing in companies like Argo, like Civic, uh, like Coinbase. Uh, most he's uh, most bullish on Coinbase in terms of value, but again, also super helpful in understanding how they got involved in Civic, both from a traditional kind of note perspective, but also in their token issuance. Spencer, thank you so much for taking us to the top. Thank you so much for having me.